Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm very appreciative to Pastor David Miles uh, and Patrick Albanese for making Hour One such a great hour. And then now we've got uh, Dr. Everett Piper coming on in just about a minute. You know him from former um, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And now he is, uh, a, you know, so he's also written the book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. And he's now a columnist for the Washington Times. So we're going to be joined by him. And then also uh, Dr. Daniel Taylor is going to be on the program too this hour. And he's written a number of books, but he's a lit professor. And um, he's also just has some great encouragement for us to learn how to tell our stories. And that's going to be something you don't want to miss. So let me take 60 seconds and then uh, bring on Dr. Piper. Do you have a story to share? We'd love to hear how Faith Radio impacts your life. Leave us a message on our Faith Line at 877-933-2484. I love Faith Radio and listen to it all the time, and I'm grateful for all that you do. Thank you for all that you do. The Faith Radio Faith Line, a place to share your story. 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484. Meeting you at the intersection of faith and life every day. Anyone who tries to get Jesus to fulfill my agenda ends up abandoning Jesus. The only way to be a disciple of Jesus is that he is Lord and I become a follower of him. Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Everett Piper, uh, you know, is former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He was there, I think, about 18 years or so. He, he may correct me on that. But he's now a columnist for The Washington Times and author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Everett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on, Bill. It's yeah. my honor. Oh, thank you. I love this story you wrote for The Washington Times on the, the popular trends are now ruling adolescent desires. Uh, I, I love your opening quote. I think it was from C.S. Lewis talking about how uh, readers, uh, we were supposed to enter the town square and marketplace of ideas with boldness and confidence in arguing that in failing to do so, we would become men without chess. <laughs> and we're, well, we're becoming that, aren't we? Sorry. Oh, we are. Um, that's a, a seminal quote from Lewis where he warned us that we'd be men without chess. And what does he mean by that? Well, he means that there's going to be this cavity, this hole in our soul, in our being, in our identity. So where we should have this fullness, this completeness of fidelity, of loyalty, of the Imago Dei, the image of God, of what it means to be a person of integrity. What We've lost all of that, and we've gutted the soul. We've gutted the human being to now that we are men without chess. We have no character. We have no integrity. We have no in- direction. And here's the thing. When there's, here's the one thing I know about physics. 
when you create a vacuum, it's always going to be filled. And if there's a vacuum in the human spirit, if there's a vacuum in the human being, it will always be filled. And if it's not filled by the Imago Dei, the image of God, God's thumbprint of culpability and conscience and awareness, moral awareness, then it will be filled by, let me say, the Imago Dog. It'll be filled by, rather than the Imago Dei, the Imago Dog. It'll be filled by the image of the base, the instinctual, the passion, the appetite, the inclination will define us rather than the identity that we find in God. And isn't that true where we are today? Absolutely. Now, as we uh, are now coming up on a political season, and I don't really like talking politics very much, but there's some really big questions and big topics uh, that are, uh, we're looking at like uh, life. When does it start? Sexuality, what is healthy and best for the body? Um, all kinds of stuff, transgender issues. Uh, where, do, where do you want to start with this? Well, you know, we've got all these big questions, but do we really want to answer? This is what we need to, as Christians, as, as a believer in the Imago Day, because I believe that I'm endowed by my creator, not by government. Mm-hmm. I'm endowed by God with certain unalienable rights and self-evident truths. So, do we want answers that are grounded in those objective facts, those truths? As Ben Shapiro says, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. Do we want answers? You know, here's a key question or a key uh, quote from last week. Alec Baldwin takes to, you know, a paragon of virtue, if there ever was one. (laughs) Alec Baldwin takes to Twitter to scold America by saying that the complete collapse of morality lays uh, in the lap of Donald Trump's supporters. Mm -hmm. Now, he said that. Now, if you I'm glad that all of a sudden Alec Baldwin, a man who has beat his wife and has been caught on tape uh, uh, verbally abusing his children. I'm glad he all of a sudden believes that there is such a thing as morality. But do you want to really discuss where it comes from. Do you want to admit that there has to be a measuring rod outside of those things being measured, again, C.S. Lewis, or you can do no measuring? If morality exists, it can't be just because you said so, and I said so, and Alec Baldwin said so. Morality has has to be a self-evident truth endowed by something bigger and better and more um, immutable than you or me or Alec Baldwin. It has to be a revelation of God, not a construct of man. Now, Everett, don't we assume that lost people will act and speak in a lost way? Well, the the Apostle Paul tells us that the truth of God is written on every human heart, whether Mm -hmm. we're pagan or whether we are a believer. The truth of God, the revelation of God, the natural law, those self-evident truths, we know those are there. In fact, C.S. Lewis covers this in Mere Christianity. He talks about every one of us, regardless of whether you're a Buddhist, you're a Baptist, you're an Anglican, or you're an atheist, every one of us knows that it's wrong for you to steal my orange. He uses that analogy. It's wrong for you to cut in line ahead of me. We get indignant when people steal small things from us or actually treat us unfairly. Where does that come from? The Apostle Paul makes it clear in his epistle to the Romans. It's that self-evident truth. It is the truth of God written on every human heart. So even the pagan knows what's right and what's wrong. Even the pagan knows that, but it's the redemptive power of Christ that allows us to actually confess 
and become a new creation in Christ because the old has been set aside and behold, we've become new. We've become born again. So there doesn't seem to be an agreement on what is right and what is wrong in in our society today. So there's a starting point of confusion and complication. And I I don't know when the last time there was a real moral consensus in our country. I'm not much of a historian. Maybe there never has been one. Well, you know, I would argue that constitutionally, you know, the Constitution is, is grounded in a moral consensus that there are like the Declaration of Independence says, self-evident truths endowed by a, a creator, not by government, but by God. So there was a consensus on the broader broader Judeo-Christian ethic and the reality that we can't be a free people if we step outside the fences that have been given to us by God. It's that paradox of discipline and freedom. Uh, G.K. Chesterton told us that if you want to be free, build a fence. Mm-hmm. That's what the Constitution is really all about. It's that paradox, if you will, of living within the confines of God's revelation. And only when you do that are you going to be a free people and a free culture. Um, So I do think we have an opportunity, and I could wax eloquent here, but I'll take a breath. We have an opportunity to respond to the Alec Baldwins. We have an opportunity to respond to the social justice warriors by simply asking, You believe in justice. Where does it come from? Can you have justice without a judge? Can you have freedom without some revealed fences? If we're not going to be ruled by God, is it true that we will be ruled by the gang? And how can we stop ourselves from this slippery slope of despotism if you're going to elevate man and his power and his privilege and his politics and his podium and his, you know, if you're going to elevate man as the ultimate measure about all things, doesn't history tell us that that does not end well for people that seek freedom? Mm, That's such a smart thought, uh, Everett. I love in your article, you talk about fundamental questions, but you raise this point, do we really want answers? And are we in an environment today where we don't really want to learn, we just want to lecture? Uh, I'm not well, I'm not actually listening to you. I'm waiting for you to stop talking so I can start talking. Yep. Yep. And even even us I would argue that it's a good lesson for those who fancy themselves as Christian apologists is to take this lesson to heart. Even the smartest man that ever walked the face of the earth was who? Jesus. Jesus was the word made flesh and dwelling among us. He's the Omega, he, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He defines himself as an alphabet. <laughs> he, <laughs> he obviously he obviously knew how to win a debate. Mm-hmm. But Jesus often, if not almost always, didn't argue. He didn't talk so much as simply asked rhetorical questions. When he had an adversary, he said, Well, which one of you wants to throw the first stone? And why do you call me Lord? And do you think you're without sin? And then he's quiet, and he watches his adversaries drop their stones and walk away. So if this is the style of engagement and apologetics, if you will, that Jesus used with an adversary, maybe we would be wise to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and just ask good questions. So as we defend truth— I know that there's a lot of opportunities where you, you want to, you don't want to get in uh, too much of a confrontation with people, and you want to have people like you. But that's 
that's oftentimes a, a, a slow path to destruction, isn't it? Well, you're talking to the wrong guy. Right? Well, I know that's I really why. don't care. I know that's what I love I about really, you, Everett. Is you just tell the truth. I really don't care if you like me or not. <laughs> well, here's the good news. Truth is, I do like you. So that's you know worth something. I think. At least when you're on my <laughs> well, show. That's it's actually a downfall of mine, probably because I am the kind of personality that popularity. Uh, you know, if you don't like me, I don't care. I'm yeah. still gonna I'm gonna still stick to my guns, and I'm gonna call a spade a spade. I understand that that may be a uniqueness that brings some um, brings some strengths to the table, but it also brings some weaknesses. So this desire for likability, I do think we live in a time and a place where we just want to be nice, and we and and niceness is not necessarily godly. I'm not sure that niceness is the measure of being Christ-like. Right. Uh, there's a difference between being truthful, honest, caring, and loving and being nice. In other words, a good parent isn't always nice. I'm not going to be nice to my boy when he's running out into the street. I'm not going to be nice to my dog when Mm -hmm. it's running out into the street. I'm going to be firm and I'm going to be clear. There's a difference between love and niceness. Yeah. Dr. Everett Piper is my guest. He's a former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, now columnist for the Washington Times and author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back. to the show. So glad to have Dr. Everett Piper as my guest. You may remember him as the former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and he now is a columnist for the Washington Times. And he's got a wonderful book called Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, which started as a column in the Wall Street Journal that went viral. Yeah, it uh, that was a it was an interesting time. That was almost five years ago. I know. Uh, I wrote when I wrote that column. And basically, I'd I simply ask a, a question I think all of America was, was, was asking. Isn't this a university? It's not really a daycare. So why should I coddle you rather than confront you? Why should I make you feel comfortable rather than challenge your character? If you expect me to make you uh, feel safe all the time while you're in college, you're in the wrong place. Go someplace else. Because as C.S. Lewis said, I love C.S. Lewis, obviously, he said, the great lion Aslan is not safe, but he's good. And that's, that's very prescient. That's a wonderful quote from Lewis. Jesus, the great lion Aslan, Jesus is not safe, but he's good. There's a great difference between goodness and safety, and we should prefer the, the goodness, and we should eschew safety, because safety lulls us into complacency. Mm-hmm. Goodness challenges us to become men and women of godly character. All right, Everett, if I can ask you about safe spaces. So how, how do we reject the idea of safe spaces in our own lives? I mean, getting out of the Christian bubble so we can reach a hurting and lost world. Well, I, I, I think this this whole concept of Lewis is very important. Um, 
in the another book in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the one I just quoted from was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he makes it clear that the lion Aslan is not safe but good. Another book is The Horse and His Boy. And in that book, we see the lion running and rushing after these children while they're trying to escape and scratching and tearing at them. We see this imagery of the lion actually hurting. Isn't that important? Sometimes, I mean, the book of Job teaches this. Mm -hmm. If there is no pain, there is no gain. And it's that paradox of life that if we really want to grow, that that discipline is necessary for growth. Not ease, not comfort. Discipline is necessary. And every good parent knows this. Every good coach knows this. Everyone knows that if you aren't pushed, then you are never going to become a person of greater character. If you're a musician, you know this. If you're not pushed to practice, if you're not pushed to learn the lessons of music, of rhyme and rhythm and cadence, you will never perform a concerto. It will always just be chaos. Mm -hmm. An athlete knows this. If you're not pushed to go to practice, to memorize the plays, to go through the rigor, if there, if you aren't pushed by the coach to do your job and to learn how to perform, you will never get off the bench. You will always be an armchair quarterback. You will never be an athlete. It's only when we're pushed through rigor, through discipline, that we experience that magic of what it's like to get on the court and get in the zone and actually start to perform without even thinking about it. That paradox of the athlete that, or excuse me, that anecdote of the athlete and that anecdote of the musician is exactly, I believe, what we should learn in our relationship with God when it comes to our Christian walk. Mm-hmm. Everett, I appreciated the article that you had written for the Washington Times on the, uh, you know, the, the madness of what's going on in, in uh, both Democratic and Republican parties. But you did talk a little bit about the Democrats uh, kind of losing a little bit of touch with reality. And you cited several examples, uh, which I don't know if anyone's going to really argue with you on. Um, you want to share a couple of those? I know we talked about Alec Baldwin uh, for one, but also, I mean, the, the whole uh, idea of this uh, uh, Lev Parnas uh who was their their big witness for the impeachment trial. And now he is uh, under indictment for fraud. And his own foreign minister says, I don't trust any word he's now saying. Yeah. Um, The Democrats, I'm going to be political, forgive me for this, but the Democrats have lost their mind. Left Parnas, he, he hasn't just become indicted for fraud. He has been indicted for fraud long ago, and yet the Democrats are parading him forward as if he's some sort of um, bombshell testimony. He's not a bombshell. He's a pop gun at the (laughs) best. I mean, Michael Avenatti comes to mind here. This Mm -hmm. is an immoral man who can't tell the truth to save his life, and he's under indictment right now for fraud. it's, it's, It's nuts. Uh, I I mentioned Alec Baldwin. Uh, Let's talk about uh, Governor Northam of Virginia, blackface Mm -hmm. Northam. The guy creates a constitutional crisis. He creates a state of emergency by telling everybody that they're no longer going to be able to avail themselves of their constitutional rights. So then he declares a state of emergency to deal with the emergency that he just declared and created. In other words, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is begging the question. You create the problem, and then you claim that you are the only solution for the problem you just created. This is nonsense. 
Elizabeth Warren confronts Bernie Sanders after the last debate for calling her a liar. Well, I think the fact that she is a liar is pretty self-evident. She lied for decades about being Native American. She's not. She's lied about being dismissed from a teaching position in Oklahoma back in her younger years because she was a pregnant mom. She wasn't. This woman is a pathological liar. She's a congenital liar. So for Bernie Sanders to point that out is what? It's not a revelation. You could go on and on with the duplicity and the hypocrisy of the people that are front and center in this party right now. Yeah. I mean, is it safe to say that politics will oftentimes just attract the the, the wrong kind of people? I mean, we expect them to be uh, these have all this moral rectitude and, and then we go, maybe you're just really, really power hungry. I look at Michael Bloomberg, a man who's worth $60 billion. Um, even when he became mayor of New York, I think he spent $130 million of his own money to get a job that paid uh, three hundred grand a year. Yeah, and then this anecdote that I throw out in my article, he literally paid or gave, donated $5 million uh, to Stacey Abrams so that she could help rally the troops to come out and come to one of his rallies, one of his events, his campaign events. Uh, I believe it was Atlanta, wherever it was. I can't remember. They had 150 people show up. Now, if you divide um, $5 million by 150, what's that come out to? 33000 per a person. <laughs> yeah. So he, he just dropped $33,000 a head to get people to show up for a campaign rally for him. Yeah. And then I, I'm being a little smug in my article, and I suggest that's probably pretty close to what he's going to tax each one of us if we're stupid enough to elect the man. <laughs> All right. Uh, Everett, what's the moral of the story, and what's the biblical application, if any? The biblical application, <laughs> the moral of the story is absolute power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Okay. The, the biblical application here is any time, any time we dethrone God and claim that he does not exist, the vacuum, the vacuum will be filled. It will be the story of the original sin. If we deny that God defines what is right and what is wrong, if we define that God defines what is good and what is evil, if we say that God does not define that any longer, we will rise up, declare ourselves to be as God, we will claim the throne, we will claim that we're the ones who decide all of that, we will call evil good and good evil, and what does the Bible tell us? Woe unto him who does that. Yeah. Everett, just a joy to uh, have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us today. Honored. Yeah, I appreciate you. it very much. Dr. Everett Piper has been my guest. He is uh, author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more.
really glad to be inviting Daniel Taylor to the show. He's an author of numerous books, including The Myth of Certainty and Letters to My Children. He is co-founder of the Legacy Center and a contributing editor for books and culture. Daniel, welcome. Thank you so much. You know, uh, Letters to My Children came out in 1989, and that's the year I bought it. And I started uh, reading that book, and after I was through the first chapter, I was so moved, and I had wept, and I had cheered, and I had gone through every range of emotion after one chapter. Well, that's wonderful. I hope you told all your friends. <laughs> I did. I did all two of them, and they went and bought the book. So, yeah, yeah that's three that's, sales That's total. half my sales right there. <laughs> but they're... Um, it, it really at the core of that book is uh, the whole idea that you want to be telling stories and you want to be have, having stories passed on to your kids. And yeah. I, I want to talk about storytelling today and how we need to do it. Right. You know, actually, it was a um, it was an example of learning uh, about stories from writing the book because I was a young father. My kids were probably at that time between the ages of five and nine. And I had a keen sense of how fragile life is. And there was no guarantee I was going to be around when in 10 years or mm-hmm. when they were older. So I thought, you know, what are they going to know of their father? My, my wife's father had died when she was young. And uh, so I thought I'm going to start writing them letters and with no intention of making a book out of it, just mm-hmm. that someday they could read these letters from their father. And my basic <clears throat> thought was very sort of uh, teacherly. I wanted to pass on values. To them. In fact, I think that's the subtitle of Father Passes on His Values. And what I found as I wrote them over months was that every time I wanted to pass on a value, I told a story. And as a, I was a lit prof for many years, and I should have known that, but it, it didn't quite occur to me that if you want to talk about what's really important in life, the, the human experience and your experience, the best way to tie that up is in a story. So it this, you know, series of letters, which could have been little mini lectures, instead became little collections of stories um, because I had to embody or give flesh to the value that I was trying to talk about. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to people about telling their story and they want to share their story and they come to you and they say, yeah, but I can't write, I'm not yeah. a writer, what is your response to them? Um I, I ask them a rhetorical question. I say, if you had a great-great-grandparent who had written you a letter and told them about their lives, which you would prize, would you care about punctuation? <laughs> would no. you care about, are they, are, are they, you know, are they Dickens? Are they right. Tolstoy? No, you would care that somebody valued you in the future enough to tell you a story that, uh, that, you, that you value now. So I think everyone is um, naturally articulate about their own stories. I, and so I try to convince people, you know, turn off that inner critic and just write down what you would say orally. Because many times our stories are ones we've told many times to other people, but we've never written them down. And so just use that same method and you will find that you can write your story and you also find that one-page stories can be as powerful as whole books, mm-hmm. that many times the most powerful stories are quite succinct. So, you know, I try to push them past the 
sort of hurdles they throw up to themselves about why they can't tell their story. Yeah. Daniel, I'd love for you to talk about turning off the inner critic, because I think that's going to be a stumbling block for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, there's a woman who said she gets up and writes very early because I I don't know if she uses the word inner critic of the phrase, but she says, I get up early and write because my inner critic likes to sleep in. (laughs) That's a great line. And I think that... um, you just, you have to be convinced. I mean, I think it helps to be a person of faith in this regard, that God hasn't wasted his creativity in creating your life. You know, I'm here for a reason. I've learned things from my life. Um, I've learned as much from the negative things that have happened to me or the bad things, or maybe the bad things I've done as from the positive. And I have a responsibility to pass that on. So I, I talk about spiritual legacy. I've written a book with that in the title, Creating a Spiritual Legacy. And my definition of a spiritual legacy is an offering of wisdom and blessing from one life to another. Mm, I like that. Um, and so it's not only a right, you have a right to tell your stories, but it's also a responsibility. And the inner critic, is ju- it's just the same thing that says you're too fat or you're not tall enough or you're not smart enough or other people are better looking than you or, you know, all the things that your siblings said to you when you were five years old. And you just, uh, you, you basically um, thumb your nose at the inner critic and say, no, God's given me things that I can bless someone else with. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that is a good starting point? I mean, as a journal, is that, or is that writing your story on training wheels or is that as good as anything? Journaling is is an excellent way to start, uh, and sometimes if you have journaled, you look back and you find the stories yeah, in your journal. Yeah, I bet. So they're already there. But I often ha- ask people to make three lists. I say make an event list, look back and say, you know, that starts with the time that, you know, the time that I fell off the horse, the time that, you know, our uncle showed up drunk at Thanksgiving. That was time. both the same day in my story. <laughs> yes, so that's you know. why he <laughs> fell off the horse. So make a character list. Okay. I'm sorry, an events list. And then the second list is a character list. Mm-hmm. You know, that teacher, that that friend, that coworker, that aunt, that grandmother. And just and you don't have to say anything other than just make put the name down the list. Yeah. And then a third list I say is a values list. What are, what what are important values to you? Um and it, and it might be really central values like faith, but it might be a value you wouldn't say is the absolute most important, like humor. I value humor mm-hmm. or something. So, and then you look for where those lists come together. Where's an event that has a character that expresses a value? And those are your most powerful stories. Mm-hmm. Now, tell those stories. Yeah. I'm going to talk about uh, your book, Creating a Spiritual Legacy and How to Share Your Stories. And I don't know, it, it's not good radio for two grown men to cry on the air. It really <laughs> is not good radio. <laughs> But I don't know, do you have it in, in you to tell a little bit of the story that I was uh, initially referring to, the one about Mary, about Mary and Mrs. Owens? Sure. Um, and, and we shared beforehand that uh, you in reading it and me, if I read it to an audience, both have uh, some trouble getting through through the story. Mary was a girl. I, I literally, I, I sobbed when I read it. And that yeah. was two weeks ago. Oh, wow. I mean, because it, it hits you again. It yeah. keeps blindsiding you. Yeah, and I have to kind of... Uh, Turn my mind off. Okay, let's, when I let's, read it. I but, you, I, but I can you tell. You turn it. your mind off and then tell the story on the air. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this should be fun. All right. So here's the question 
the format of letters to my children is questions my kids either did ask or I anticipated when they're older they would ask. And the the question, this is literally a question that all my kids asked, was uh, what do you do when someone um, who's out of it wants to be your friend? And it's a school question. You know, here's the unpopular kid. Uh, you know, you know, you're told in church that you have to be kind to these kids, but there's no gain for you. So when I, I'm trying to answer this, and what do I think of? I think of Mary, a story I hadn't literally thought of my whole life from the day it happened until I was sitting there 25 years later writing this down. Mary was a girl in the sixth grade. I was 12. I was sort of a, I was the peak of my life. And it's really sad when your life peaks in sixth grade, but I was that was the peak of my athletic career and all kinds of stuff. And I was the smart kid who had all the answers. Um, and Mary was a girl who had polio, had had polio, uh, had a bad leg. Her arm was drawn up. She was a little overweight. And we did this, what I think was a terrible thing. We uh, Later, I realized, I didn't like it at the time either, <laughs> uh, when we had to dance and we were supposed to learn social graces by dancing we had the boys would line up and choose a girl to be their partner and um so mary was always the last girl chosen it was just nobody was going to choose mary so i had this this um student teacher going to the local christian college miss owens who came to me and said dan next time we dance i want you to choose mary and i i just couldn't get my head around it why would i choose mary it was, um, I, as I say in the book, it's like purposely trading a Mickey Mantle card for Andy Pafko. Mm-hmm. Why would you give up your Mickey Mantle card? But I agonized over it. And, you know, to show you how stories work, I couldn't get around the idea that Jesus would pick Mary. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying I'm a Christian. My dad was a pastor. So sure enough, the day comes, they line us up. I'm hoping I'm last in line because then... I can pick Mary, everybody, you know, I'm last. Of course, yeah. I pick Mary. Yeah. No, I'm first in line. Mm. The, student, the master teacher has been talking to the student teacher. Okay. And so he says, pick your partner. And I just, I, I just hear my voice say it. It's almost like I don't will it. I choose Mary. And she just turned around. She wasn't even looking back at the boy standing in the back of the room. All the other girls were. And she just turned around and had this look on her face of delight and surprise and that it just embarrassed me. I had because I, I knew I didn't really deserve this because mm-hmm. I had had to be prompted to do it. Right. And then Miss Owens had already gone up to the auditorium where we were to dance. She is playing on the piano. Mary and I come in at the head of the line, and she just gives me a big smile, like she knew, of course, I was going to do this. And afterwards, uh, Linda and Shelley, who were <laughs> probably who I would have chosen. <laughs> came up to me and said, Miss Owens made you do that, didn't she? And I said, no, she didn't make me do it. I said, no. And I wasn't lying. I said, I had chosen Mary. And I was glad. And I end that story by saying, I hope she has a a memory of at least one good day in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. I know I do. So that story became a seminal story for me just because I had to remember it to tell it to my kids. Right. And... That's how stories work, I think. Yeah. It's just so lovely. And I know that if you experience it in the privacy of the book, you will, um, you'll feel something uh, extremely intense, which I felt and I still feel when I read it. It's, it's, it's just a beautiful story. 
And maybe, this is a long shot, but maybe um, Miss Owens or Mary are listening to the broadcast today. It's been a long time uh, uh, dream of mine that someday I would be reading that story in the audience and either Miss Owens or Mary would walk up and say, here I am, let's yeah. dance. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So in your book, Creating a Spiritual Legacy, How to Share Your Stories, Values, and Wisdom, um, I want to I want to find out, you know, how how we um, decide to take a piece of our life. I know you gave us some great guidelines about picking uh, the characters and the events and uh, the values and trying to blend them all together. So that's a great starting point. But I want to um, jump in a little bit more if we can. And we'll take a little break. And when we come back, we'll start with that. Uh, Dr. Daniel Taylor is my guest. And we're talking about his book, Creating a Spiritual Legacy, how to share your stories, values, and wisdom. We'll take a short break and be right back. show. Daniel Taylor is my guest, and I'm just loving this time. I got his uh, one of his books, Letters to My Children, in 1989. Just loved it. And I don't have tons of books, but I have a handful of books. I kind of always know where they are. It's kind of on a shelf where I have some of my favorite books, and Daniel's book is in there. And it's just a great, uh, great book, and I just enjoy it very much. But his book, Creating a Spiritual Legacy, How to Share Your Stories, Values, and Wisdom, Maybe we should start, Daniel, with, uh, you know, what is a spiritual legacy? Well, I have both a long definition of that, which I cannot remember, and the short definition, which I gave you earlier, which is an offering of wisdom and blessing from one life to another. And I think it's something human beings have always done. I mean, the, the our, our image of the most ancient of peoples is them sitting around a fire telling stories. So when you think, how is anything of value passed on in culture, in civilizations. It is passed on usually through stories, more than through formulas or straight assertions or that kind of thing, because stories impact us as whole people. They don't just, and it, they, they do operate with the intellect and the mind, but they also operate with the emotions and the will and even the body, because we talked about you can be moved by a story, your, your body can be thrilled or uh, you can be overcome with emotion or whatever by a story. So stories treat us as whole people and have always been the way that we pass things on. You see this clearly in the Bible over and over again in the Old Testament. It's uh, we're told to tell the stories so that a future generation may know the Lord. That's in Psalms. You know, why, why do we even know this? Why do we have any uh, chance to know God? Because somebody decided to tell the story, and some people died for the story. And so generation after generation, they're passed on. But a story is never more than one generation from extinction. Hmm. And this is, happens all the time with family stories. You know, I th when I drive pi past what they euphemistically call rest homes, I think those are libraries of stories, and they're, they're disappearing every day. Um, so if, your if, you, if, if the story, for instance, to take faith as the example of God's work in your life is not passed on, then it dies with you, 
right? So, and there are, you know, other people, and especially I would say younger people who are desperate for your, for stories of God at work in the world and at work in our lives. Um, you know, if we, we talk about our culture and the bad shape we're in now, one reason I think, <clears throat> almost the essential reason is we're starved for good stories. You know, many of the stories we used to value, we don't value anymore, and we haven't replaced them with adequately valuable stories. So a spiritual legacy is that part of your life that will always have the ability to be a blessing to someone else. And so by telling your stories, I, orally is good. Uh, I would say writing is even better because they can be more widely sp- spread and they are more likely to survive. Um, we are doing one of the things we're, we are created to do. We, are, we have been receivers of the blessing and the wisdom of others. And so it's our responsibility to be givers of that same thing. It's so interesting that you say that, you know, a story is one generation away from being extinct. You know, when uh, I assume you've lost both your parents. Yes. Yeah. And did you feel a a slight sense of panic as to who's left that might know the information, might have the story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And my father was the storyteller. Okay. My father loved to tell stories. I lived apart from him for uh, all my adult life. Whenever we, we, I would pick him up at the airport for a visit or he would pick me up, he would start telling me stories, and always from his past and especially from his youth, which he was very proud of, including his story of seeing Jackie Robinson. Wow. <laughs> I want to hear that and, one. And he would talk to me and tell me stories until uh, we got dropped off back at the airport. And so he saw me. I, I later realized he did not like to write. He, he maybe wrote three letters in his adult life. Um, and I was writing books and he, I, I finally figured out he's counting on me to preserve his stories or some of them at least. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And when he died, I felt like a re- I'd lost a resource. In fact, I had a plan to pick up my father in Memphis, Tennessee, where he was living at the time and drive. We lived many different places. He was sort of an itinerant pastor through Texas and California and go to churches that he had had and places we had lived and just have him tell me stories. But then he died suddenly of a heart attack. Never happened. So I, you know, I kind of felt like I missed out there. You know, why didn't I act on that sooner? Mm-hmm. Um, when we uh, think of storytelling and we realize that this is how we are sharing our stories and our legacies with other people, um, what are some guidelines? Now, embellishment might be fun, uh, but maybe not a wise thing to do either. Yeah. I don't. I say don't worry about embellishment. Everybody knows it's your version of that story okay. and that other people would tell others. People worry about, well, what if I don't remember exactly the conversation? Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, because I tell them, put in dialogue. Let's let us hear the voice of the other person, not just summary over, you know, summarizing a scene, but let us hear it. Well, what if I don't remember exactly? Well... Every writer knows as long as you're faithful to the gist of what went on and how that person expresses themselves that nobody, including God, is going to hold you accountable for. Was that exactly the word the person used or not? Mm-hmm. So uh, w- all storytelling has embellishment in it and it all also all has a point of view. You know, in other words, it's is your take on it. Right. And uh, someone else is free to say the 
something else. I know a story from my wife's family in which two women had a fight and a dish was thrown and both of them think the other person threw it. <laughs> Are you kidding? I know. So it's like, all right, somebody's not. <laughs> there weren't two dishes thrown. No. Somebody's wrong, but who? I'm not going to get involved and say who I think it was. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. That's how story. That's part of how we tell stories. Yeah. And how how useful and effective are stories being in, when you implement them into gospel presentations and. Well, the whole gospel is a story. Of course, I mean the the yeah. the gospel is a story, but. Yeah. But it's, you know, it, other little stories. Okay, many times, many times I've sat in a church listening to a sermon and watched people's heads kind of go down and, you know, and sometimes eyes close yeah. and they're not praying, you know, or just wander <laughs> kind of looking around or looking at their bulletin. And then the preacher will say, the pastor will say, that reminds me of the time and heads go up. They just, I've seen it. They just all go up. Oh, he's going to tell me a story. Our brains are wired for stories. It's how the brain f- figures out reality. It gets all this sense data, way too much really, and it ignores most of it and looks for a narrative line to to make reality seem like a story. Mm-hmm. So I say that um, a story is not like reality. A reality is like a story. Reality is a story. So you're just... You're just repeating what the brain does anyway in in um, giving shape to experience mm-hmm. in but a story form. It is interesting, Daniel, because when you start to hear a story, it's like your your brain goes on notice because you want to start making sure you're hearing and retaining as much of the, that information along the way as you can. Right, because there, you, your brain thinks there's a payoff, and there, a good story there is. Yeah. You know, it's going to be an insight or a laugh or a deeper knowledge of this person who's talking to you or they're going to ask you a question or you're going to have to act on it. Yeah. So your brain stays alert, as you say, because yeah. it knows it, it it needs to respond probably. Yeah. Now I asked you to tell the Mary story and the Miss Owen story, but is there another story that you just personally just love telling? <laughs> one more than one, maybe more than another? Well, I could, I mean, this is another story from letters to my children. I could... One of my kids asked, did you ever cheat in school? Which is not a question you want your kids asking you. <laughs> and I say, well, actually twice. And the first time was in fourth grade because it was the last spelling test of the year. And I had gold stars. And I had a teacher who kept charts of everything, including how many home runs you hit at recess. Wow. And so I had a gold star, 100% for every spelling test. And I came to the last one and the word piano and I just blanked on piano, and I couldn't sound it out. What you know that I A? What is that P? I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. It was this created all this anxiety in me, and so I looked at the girl next to me, saw the spelling. I said, "Oh yeah, that's right," and I copied it down. And I knew that I had done something wrong. I was a good little Baptist kid, and uh, very easily felt guilt. And <laughs> so I, that. I wouldn't say it's a favorite story that I tell all the time, but it's another one that comes to mind. Yeah. I love it that your your kids ask you this point-blank question. Oh, yeah. Well, here's another little story about that book after it's been out a while. I I never actually read those letters to my kids. I mean, it was an accident. They that can they, buy the book and read them yeah, well, they, themselves. It's an accident that they got published. Okay. <laughs> and I'm driving along, and my daughter, who uh, at the time would have been maybe seven, 
is in the back seat. And I don't know what I said, but it, maybe I was short of temper or, or I said something that probably wasn't totally appropriate. And I hear this little voice that says, that's not what you said in your book. <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> I thought busted. Bust. <laughs> don't let your kids, don't let anybody in your family read your stuff. Yeah. They'll get you. That's fantastic. Uh, Daniel, you've certainly have, uh, reminded us all the importance of storytelling and how we can all write our own story because it's our story. Right. Yeah. Right. And not to uh, let the inner critic get the better part of you, but just to try your, do your best to ignore that. One last obstacle that you should overcome is the I don't have time and when I do have time I will which is a total lie to yourself yeah and I tell people uh create story create writing uh segments in your week put them in your calendar and defend them the same as you would a doctor's appointment and even if it's like two hours every other Saturday morning you're amazed it's amazing how much that adds up and uh, so when com- somebody calls you and says, oh, can you go to the game Saturday morning? Say, no, I, I, I'm booked. Time. You know, don't, don't wait for free time. There is no such thing. Yeah. Daniel Taylor's been my guest in his book, Letters to My Children and Creating a Spiritual Legacy of the two we've chatted about today. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel, for coming into the studio. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. All right. We'll take a short break and we'll be back with lots more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.